Did Winston Churchill personally save Britain from Nazi Germany in World War II? Or to put it another way, was his leadership essential to its survival and eventual victory? That's one of the questions that Paul Johnson raises in his small biography on Winston Churchill. And to get that answer, Johnson considers 10 what he calls factors and virtues that operated in Churchill's favor. Factors within and outside of his control. Everything from his gift to public speaking, that when Hitler began to tone down his rhetoric and started to go underground, Churchill began to ramp his rhetoric up. Or the fact that Churchill rose to power at a desperate time. And since desperate times call for desperate measures, Churchill declared to Parliament that his aim was simple and it was clear. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Britain, as Johnson put it, was facing extinction as a free country. And after looking at those ten factors in Churchill's life, this is what Johnson concludes. Did Churchill save Britain? The answer must be yes. No one else could have done it. This was what was felt at the time by the great majority of British people. And it has been since confirmed by the facts and documents at our disposal. So understand what Johnson is saying right here. He's saying that given all of the factors at play for Britain in World War II, you take Churchill out of the equation and Britain crumbles under the power of Nazi Germany. The X factor for Britain's survival or their suffering, according to Johnson's assessment, was Winston Churchill. On our passage this morning, the people of Israel found themselves in a very similar place. While facing the threat of defeat at the hands of their enemies, they had the right one on their side who could deliver them from destruction. So if you would, please turn with me to Psalm 124. You can find that on page 517 in the Red Pewback Bible there in front of you. Psalm 124, page 517 on the Red Pewback Bible there in front of you. Listen as I read Psalm 124, verses 1 through 8. A song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a simple psalm this morning. Because it's a simple psalm, this is a simple sermon. Because this is a simple sermon, we've got a simple main idea. So this is the simple main idea for you this morning. If you feel like dozing off, you need to write one thing before you leave. So that way if you go back and read Psalm 124, you know what in the world it's talking about. But it's simple, so it shouldn't be hard. This is what I think is the main idea of Psalm 124. Praise the Lord who delivers our soul from the danger of destruction. That's what I think the main idea is. Praise the Lord who delivers our soul from the danger of destruction. I want us to consider two, well, I want us to look at two things particularly from this psalm. And I think it breaks down nicely really into two sections. Verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 8. And so there are two points that mimic those two sections. The first point is this. Consider what would have been. Consider what would have been. That's point number one. You see that in verses one through five. In verses six through eight, point number two, praise the Lord for what is. Consider what would have been and praise the Lord for what is. So point number one, consider what would have been. Psalm 124 is a psalm written by David, and it's a part of a collection of about 15 psalms that includes Psalms 120 all the way through 134. And these songs are called the Psalms of Ascent, as you can see there in the title of the psalm. Now there's much debate over the meaning as to what that ascent actually was. However, what's certain is that these songs were pilgrim songs. Songs that were sung by the people of Israel as they made their pilgrimage or journey to Jerusalem to celebrate those three annual feasts each year. The feast of, or that of Passover, you can find that in Exodus 12. The feast of weeks, which is just the wheat harvest, Exodus 34. And then the feast of ingathering, which is the end of harvest, there again in Exodus 34. And in these Psalms, the people of Israel are journeying to the very heart of God in the very center of worship. They're going up to the temple. And there are varying emotions that these people are carrying with them as they journey. If you look at all these psalms of ascent, everything from gladness to pain, distress, everything from distress to exhaustion, crying out to God for mercy due to the trials that are common to us all. We saw that two weeks ago in Psalm 123. And yet even in this range of feelings... God's people still have their sight fixed upon the Lord in praising his name. He is their focus, and he is their purpose for the journey, for going up. As the closing psalm of ascent declares, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord, or praise the Lord. That's what bless means. And one of the beautiful things about the Psalter is that it's effective. It is effective. It's shaping our feelings according to the truth of God's word. I love how one author put it. 
He says the Psalms are written to help us put our feelings in the right place. The Psalms are written to help us put our feelings in the right place. With all of the ups and downs of life, we need to work those feelings through until we feel as we are meant to feel. And the reality is that, just like the people of Israel, we too are a people with our eyes fixed upon our heavenly home when someday we will be in the very presence of God. And along this journey, there's going to be a host of trials and you're going to have a range of feelings and emotions on this journey. And so my encouragement to us this morning is to let Psalm 124 shape and mold our feelings to the truth that God delivers his people from the danger of destruction. And my prayer is that this truth would lead you to praise the Lord. So if you would, look, look at uh, verses 1 through 5 there in Psalm 124. Look with me at verses 1 through 5. Now we're not exactly sure which battle David is writing about in this psalm. It's possible that David wrote this psalm just after being established as king by God over Israel, as recorded in 2 Samuel 5. And in that moment, the Philistines find out David has taken the throne, and they come up against Israel wanting to take out Israel, wanting to destroy them. But whichever battle David has in mind right here, the point isn't lost. That without the right one on their side, destruction rather than victory would have been the outcome. And so I want us to notice three things in these first five verses. Three things, just going to walk through the text in these first five verses. The first thing I want us to see or to consider is the condition. Just that conditional phrase right there in verses one and two. The condition. The second thing is to consider the circumstances of that condition. And then finally, we want to consider the outcome or the consequence of that condition. So first, consider the condition. Okay, these are sub-points underneath the main overarching points. Don't want us to get lost right here. Sub-point number one. Consider the condition. So look with me there at verses one and two. Verse one begins, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And just to make sure that we're listening, he states it again. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. So right here, Israel is stepping aside and they're reflecting for a moment on the opposite outcome from what really happened. So what would have been the outcome had the Lord not been on Israel's side? That's what we want to meditate on. That's what we want to think about. For Israel, this condition is crucial to understanding God's provision and protection. It is crucial for understanding the entire psalm. It is what the whole psalm hinges upon. We have to understand this condition. If God isn't on our side, then destruction. Very simple. If God is on our side, then deliverance. Not on our side, destruction. On our side, deliverance. But first, notice what it doesn't say. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say if it had been for our military strength, then we would have been swallowed up. 
if it, wouldn't have, if it would have not been for our military strength. They don't say that. And if anyone had military success, it was that of David, the king of Israel. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens, his tens of thousands. But the people don't credit their military strength to protect them from their enemy. That's not what they do. Also, it doesn't mention Israel's wealth. It doesn't mention their pedigree or their size as a nation. As it says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it wasn't because they, Israel, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Or to put it another way, Israel wasn't the first, they weren't the second, they weren't the third or the fourth or the, fir- or the, fifth, pi- or pr- the fifth person that you would have picked for your pickup basketball game. That's not what they were. They were those that you would like for them to be bench warmers. That's Israel. There was nothing about them that made God perk up and just think, hmm, they've got potential. Actually, as you read through the Old Testament, you see that. You see the exact opposite of that. Israel consistently disobeys the Lord. They grumble against the Lord. And they worship anything and everything other than the Lord. And so notice that Israel knows not to credit themselves for provision and protection from danger. Because the act of salvation far exceeds anything that they could ever actually even provide for themselves. So second, so they don't look to their military might or strength as a nation to save them from their enemies. Okay, what about their circumstances? Can they find hope in their circumstances? It's the second part, verses two through three. In these verses, we see their enemy rising up and their burning anger against the people of God. They don't say that their enemy was upset with them and their enemy came up to have a fireside chat about conflict resolution. That's not what it says. Their enemy isn't looking for a peace treaty with Israel. They burned like a raging wildfire ready to consume Israel. This was a real, clear, and present danger that was about to devour and drown them. The battle doesn't seem to be in their favor. The situation looked hopeless. They were not in a position to win. They were in a position to lose. So they can't find hope or they can't give credit to their circumstances as if they were just in the right place at the right time and everything just happened to work out for the best. They were on the brink of disaster. So God being on their side wasn't dependent upon Israel having it all together, whether by size or circumstances. His being on their side wasn't dependent upon them earning his favor. If their deliverance from danger was dependent upon them, there would be serious consequences. That's what I want to consider, third thing right here. Consider the consequences of this. Verses three through five. There's a reason why we don't shoot off fireworks during the day, but at night. There's a reason why we don't do that. Because against the backdrop of the night sky, you see its beauty on greater display. 
And I think for, in order for us to be able to grasp the glory of God on our side, we need to first see the darkness and destruction that can come to a life without God. So that way, that when we see the glory of God and see the glory of life with God, each of us, all of that will shine even brighter and be on a more magnificent display to our hearts. And we can see this in two images that he gives us in verses three through five. So to illustrate the consequences of not having the Lord on their side, he speaks of devouring and then drowning. In verse three he says, if the Lord had not been on our side, then they would have swallowed us up alive. The word swallowed here is just a metaphor for death. Death by the hand of their enemies would have been quick and immediate. There was no process of chewing that was going on. It's as if a monster just came, gulped them right up, they're done. That's it. They're saying that if God hadn't been on their side, then their enemies would have swallowed them up. They're swallowed up alive, like that of a monster ready to devour his prey in one gulp. He also uses the image of a flood in verses 4 and 5. If the Lord had not been on our side, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. And then over us would have gone the raging waters. And this image of the flood and raging waters would have probably called to their mind, as you can probably think about, the time of Noah and God flooding the earth as judgment against man's sin and disobedience. They're saying that if God hadn't been on our side, then their enemies would have swept over them like the flood did to all of those in the time of Noah who sinned and disobeyed the Lord. And these twin images are very clear. Life without God will be a quick and swift destruction by the hand of our enemies. So friends, consider for a moment the consequences of a life without God on your side. I think that's the point of this whole first point. Consider what would have been if God is not on your side. Let's just think about that for a minute. Paul summarizes the life God saves us from in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And on hearing it, it's brutal. Praise the Lord for 4 through 10 in Ephesians 2. He summarizes the life God saves us from in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and he says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice everything that he says right here. Without God on our side, we are spiritually dead because of our sin. That's what he says. And we would still be living for sin. And how would we do that? By following the world, following the desires of our flesh and Satan himself. 
the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we're going after without God on our side. We would still be, by nature, children of wrath. For God's wrath burns against those people because of our rejection of God. That's where we would still be, deserving of his just condemnation because of our rebellion against him. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, 50, right? We're not just reserving it to Paul. Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 50, that the consequence of a life without God, not on our side, is one where we're thrown into the fiery furnace and in anger against God, we weep and we gnash our teeth at him. And why is this? Why is this? Because God, as one of my friends once put it, is too good of a judge to just wink at our sin and then just sweep it under the rug. You've never committed a small sin in your life because your sin isn't against a small God. So friends, sometimes it's good to just be reminded of what would have been had God not raised us out of the mouth, out of the mouth and flood of sin and death through faith in his son. And if you're here this morning, you don't identify as one who has God on your side. Understand that this danger of destruction is the reality for you because of your sin. That's the reality for you. You just open the word and go look at that. That is what is right now for you. Yet there's great hope for you. There is great hope for you this morning because God has brought deliverance from this destruction through death, the death of his own son for our sin. And this deliverance can be yours by turning from a life enslaved to sin, as we read about in Romans chapter 6, a life enslaved to sin and instead trusting in Christ as your Lord and your master, being a slave to Christ instead. And if you'd like to know more about that, or if you'd like to chat more about what it means to follow Christ, I would love to chat with you after the service. Anyone on the pastoral staff here would love to chat with you about that. So please come see us after the service. I'd love to chat with you more about what that means and what that can mean for you. So it's good to consider what would have been. But it's even better to praise God for what is. It is even better to praise God for what is. That's point number two. Point number two, praise the Lord for what is. So what was it then that put the Lord on Israel's side? That's the question we've got to raise. Like, how in the world did they get the Lord on their side? The smallest of the nations. How do they get the Lord? What, what was it that put the Lord on their side? And how can you know? How can you this morning leave here knowing that the Lord is on your side? Those are the questions we want to answer right here. So if the previous section was about the consequences of a life without God's presence, then in verses 6 through 8, we want to look at the response. We want to look at our response as the result of God's presence delivering us from the danger of destruction. So look with me at verse 6. The people are singing. This is a song. This is a song, a pilgrim song. 
Let Israel now say, the people are singing this song. And they're saying, blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting after what we just read? God's people just got done going through a life and death kind of trial. And now here they are rejoicing in the Lord. Singing pilgrim songs. This is fascinating. They were almost given over as animal food to their enemy. God did not give us over as prey to their teeth. And yet they're not shaking their fist at God and saying, how dare you? How dare you put me through something like that? No. They're grateful to God to have life. They're grateful to God for life. They're grateful to God because God accomplished for them what they could not accomplish for themselves. He accomplished the impossible for them. They're in a lose-lose, back against the wall, you're not getting out of this kind of situation. That's what they were in. They weren't giving anyone credit for their, for their salvation except the Lord. And you can see that again in verse 6. The Lord has not given us. The Lord, the Lord has not given us. It's the Lord that didn't give them over to pray as prey to their, their teeth. They were trapped and hemmed in like a bird caught in a hunter's trap, according to verse 7. They recognized that God had ultimate control over their life. As it says in verse 8, He's the maker of heaven and earth. He owns everything, even us. He is the owner of his creation. It's his possession, and only he can accomplish the impossible, what man cannot accomplish. And so the purpose of their trial was for their rejoicing, not for their regretting having gone through the trial. It's for their rejoicing, not the regretting. Because when they came out on the other side of the trial, they knew and they experienced the provision and the protection of the Lord in greater depth. It was in the valley that they saw a greater vision of the Lord. It's in the valley. So how does your worship of God, blessed be the Lord, how does your worship of God serve as a witness to the world? of God's work on your behalf? How does your worship of God serve as a witness to the world of God's work on your behalf? I want to give you a couple things right here for application. A couple of ideas to help for this week. Number one, think about your testimony. God's story of grace in your life. You can give God praise because of his grace to you in your life in pulling you up out of the mouth of your enemy and out of the floodwaters and saving you in putting your feet on solid ground. That's the story of God's grace. Your life, the story of God's grace if you are a believer. And we ought to be excited to be able to tell people about what God has done. You can be clear with the gospel in your testimony. No, your testimony is not the gospel. But the gospel can be clear when we're explaining what God did within us biblically. So think about someone that you can share your testimony with this week. 
Maybe it's your kids. Maybe they haven't heard that story. But give God praise. And one of the ways that we can give God praise is by sharing our testimony with others. It's very simple. If you want to learn how to do that, I would love to meet up and chat with you about that. Please send me an email. Find me after the service. I would love to help you with that. would love to do that. Second, look for grace. Look for grace. It is all over everything. It is everywhere. Look for grace. It is running rampant all throughout your life. So when you go to bed at night, when you go to bed tonight, just recollect on all the ways that God has shown you grace, even just today. Just think about it. Just meditate back through your day and consider all the ways that the Lord has shown you grace. And then, after you spend five minutes doing that, spend the next five minutes praising God for the grace that he has shown to you. Spend that five minutes praising God. Find somebody this week that you can praise God for their life. There there are lots of us in here, and there are many, all of us in here, God is doing a work on our life. Find someone in this congregation that you can praise God for and tell them that you praise God because of how they've grown spiritually, because of how they love and care for their family, because of how diligently they work at their job and the kind of witness that that has to coworkers. Go up to someone and just tell them that I praise God for your life because of how you love other people. I want more of that. We can do that this week. Third, another way that our worship is a witness to the world of God's work is what we're doing right here and right now. It's not me, my Bible, and Jesus. That's not what it is. It's not me, you all. It's not me and the words on the screen, and I'm just kind of singing the words on the screen individually. Our singing this morning isn't just individual. It's corporate It's a community affair. Like the Israelites who sang these words as they were journeying up to the temple in Jerusalem, we gather this morning weighed down by various trials with danger all around us, ready to try to take us down. We gather as those going through trials, just like the Israelites. Whole host of emotions going on within us right now, carrying baggage as we come in this morning. And yet we gather together rejoicing in the work of the Lord. There was much danger they had in their life. They were about to be eating up. And yet the refrain is, blessed be the name of the Lord. We gather as a community of saints. This is a communal gathering where we give praise to God together. We rejoice at the work of God in our life. That's what we're doing this morning. Well, there's one last thing. There's one last thing that I think that we need to see from this text. I think if we miss this, you miss the text. You missed its beauty and its power. One last thing. Look at how people, look at how the people describe this salvation in verse seven. Look at how they describe this salvation. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. And we have escaped. And then they go on in verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
So let's go back to that question that we began the point with. So why was the Lord on their side? Why was the Lord on Israel's side? And how can you know this morning, without a shadow of a doubt, that the Lord is on your side? The Lord was on their side because of the Lord. The Lord was on their side because of the Lord. Four times, right here in this psalm, God is called the Lord in all caps. And you see it there in verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 8. And so when Israel declares that their help is in the name of the Lord in verse 8, they're speaking about God's very person himself, everything that is wrapped up in God himself, his very character and nature. They're speaking about God's very person. And so their deliverance is tied to the person of God. This is the personal God who enters into a covenant with his people by his unearned, undeserved favor. That's what we call grace. It's not just unearned favor, but it's unearned and undeserved. We forfeited that favor. We forfeited it. And yet, God has entered into a covenant with his people by this unearned, undeserved favor that he lavishes upon him and upholds that covenant with his people that they just continually break day after day after day. And so God's covenant is his steadfast commitment to uphold all his promises to his people. Or as one author put it, it means God's love is locked in to his people in unending commitment. David is showing us that God is on Israel's side, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. It's not about their power and prestige as a nation, but about God's presence. That's what it's about. It's not Israel's faithfulness or their goodness to earn the presence of God. It's God's covenant faithfulness gifted to the people of God despite their faithlessness. He is the covenant-keeping God whose commitment to his people is unending and it is unfailing. In other words, God is for them, 100% for them, because he is the one who entered into a covenant with his people. Even when they fail to commit, even when they fail to keep it, he always faithfully keeps it. That's why back in Genesis, whenever God's making that covenant with Abraham, God walks through the carcasses on both sides and says, Let that be me right there, that dead carcass, if I do not uphold this covenant to you. You're going to fail to uphold it, but I'm going to keep both sides. As impossible as it is for the hogs to have an undefeated season this year, so too it is with God not keeping his covenant with his people. It is that certain. Woefully. So how can you know that the Lord is on your side? This is it right here. How can you know that the Lord is on your side? Because the Lord has broken the snare of sin and death by the blood of his own son. Christ is the snare breaker. He is the snare breaker. We have escaped and been delivered from enslavement to the twin enemies of sin and death. We have escaped from the penalty and the power of sin through the death of Christ in our place. Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can enter into God's new and better covenant written upon our hearts through repentance and faith in Jesus. And Jesus gives you the gift of the Spirit to write that law, to write that covenant upon your heart. 
This was the very truth that the Protestant reformers, right, 500 years, I would be, it would be remiss of me not to do this. This is why, this is the very truth that the Protestant reformers sought to do, or sought to proclaim during the Reformation. That their acceptance, our acceptance, in favor before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. We don't need another sacrifice to atone for our sins or another righteousness to stand upon in order to be accepted before God. We need no other righteousness. We need no other sacrifice than Christ's sacrifice in righteousness alone. We don't look to any other mediator. Christ's work is finished and it is sufficient to atone for our sins once and for all time. It is finished once for all time. We don't look to another mediator between God and man. We look to the God-man, Jesus Christ. David and the people of Israel didn't get to see what we get to know and what we get to experience this side of the cross. The presence of God isn't just among or near us as it was for the people in the Old Testament. It isn't just kind of among us or near us, but his presence now dwells within us by the gift of his Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And one day, when this journey ends, when death and sin, they're going to be no more, Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And he will bring us into that celestial city where we will be able to dwell before the very presence of God himself in all its glory for all eternity. This means that for God to abandon us, God would have to abandon his own son. For God to abandon us, he would have to abandon his own son. As Paul says in Romans 8, what a glorious passage to finish on this morning. Romans 8, 31 through 39. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to work through it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate us from it? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, you can know that God is on your side this morning because he did not spare his own son for you. He gave up his only son for you. Through faith in Christ, you can be freed from the shackles and the snare of sin and death. Turn from your sin. 
Turn from your sin and trust in Christ to free you from bondage to sin and death. Turn to him. Let us not undermine. Let us not undermine God's work for us in Christ by trying to take credit where credit is not due. Let us not undermine his work by trying to take credit for ourselves, for our salvation. And we often can do this when we think that we need to add to our salvation or we just got to pay God back. He's done so much for me. I just need to pay him back. Christ has accomplished all that is needed to pay for your sins. He's done it. Rest in his work. Let us not undermine God's work for us in Christ by thinking that we can fall in and out of his favor depending on how well we're doing spiritually at the time. We so often do this. My quiet time was awful this morning. Oh, God is upset. Haven't been in prayer for three days. Haven't shared my faith. Responded to my wife a little upset in an upset way. But the beauty of this is that being united to Christ through faith, your union with Christ is absolutely set. It's going nowhere. It's set. Your acceptance before God is set. And yet your communion, your fellowshipping with God, well, that can change. There are times when you can feel that God is cold and he's distant from you. And there are, very, there are a host of various reasons for that. And you see that often in the Psalms. But don't forget, because you're united to Christ, God is on your side. And so don't be slothful and become a slave to your sin. We still sin, yes. But the smoke of war must go up from our soul as we fight against our sin. We must put it to death and consider ourselves dead to sin and alive with Christ. Our help is in the name of the Lord who doesn't help those who help themselves. He doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. And we are helpless. And yet we have a mighty helper who has won for us what we could not win for ourselves. So is the Lord on your side? Is the Lord on your side? If yes, then praise the Lord who delivers our soul from the danger of destruction. And if no, if not, then trust in the Lord who can deliver your soul from the danger of destruction. Turn to him. Let's pray. Great God, we praise you that you have won for us what we could not win for ourselves. We praise you that we do not come one day before your throne and we don't have all of these things that we come in our hands bringing to you to try to earn or curry your favor. We can take credit. We cannot take credit for our salvation. And we praise you for that, that you have not given us over as prey to the teeth of sin and death. Lord, help us to live lives of gratitude where the tenor of our life looked, out from the, looked at from the outside world is one of praise and thanksgiving given to you 
because you have accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.